Well, folks. Well, hello, folks, and welcome to episode 28 of The Herd. This is David Shepard, your host, MLA for Edmonton City Center and proud new Democrat. Happy to be bringing you another episode from here at home, though next week we are going to be going back to the Alberta legislature. So on Wednesday, May 27th, we will be seeing the sitting at the Alberta legislature resume uh, and moving forward looks like going into the summer. So running through the summer, at least until the end of July. So it's going to be an interesting time as we sort of figure out how to navigate this uh, as we are seeing the economy open up and more people move out into the community, uh, returning to workplaces, businesses opening up. Of course, we are still being asked to respond the recommendations and uh, and the rules put forward by the Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, that includes uh, keeping uh, two meters distance from other individuals. So that means in the Alberta legislature, we will not be able to have all 87 MLAs present during debate. So that opens up some interesting questions then about reduced democratic uh, representation. That means uh, not everyone's MLA can be there to debate at all times or necessarily have a chance to put in on uh, legislation that might be relevant to their constituency. So it's going to take some organizing. It's going to take some careful thought and consideration and some important questions we're going to have to think through. But I'm looking forward to returning to the legislature and having that opportunity uh, as we have for a few times over the last few weeks since the COVID-19 pandemic came in to continue with debate and move forward with some of the work of the province. So let's just take a moment then to maybe review some of the stuff that is happening on the political front over the last little while. So following the May long weekend, there are some continuing concerns regarding the reopening of the economy. Now, of course, uh, just before the long weekend, we, we did have that official opening in all parts of the province except for Calgary and Brooks moving into that phase one. Uh, Calgary Brooks, because of the uh, continuing COVID-19 cases then, the numbers that were increasing there, the chief medical officer of health said they would have to wait. And indeed, we did get word from the uh, from the premier on Friday that indeed, yes, we will be moving forward in those jurisdictions. So as of May 25th, hairstyling, barbershops will be permitted to reopen in Calgary and Brooks. Cafes, restaurants, pubs, bars able to reopen for table service at 50% capacity. So the first stage opening seems to be going well across the rest of Alberta as well. So I anticipate it should move forward fairly well in Calgary and Brooks too. Now, the thing is though, we are still hearing from some small and medium businesses about some of their concerns. They've, uh, they feel they've gotten some good support from their municipal governments that the federal government programs that have come forward have also been helpful, though there are some concerns with one or two, but in general, the support has been good. And indeed, we had a uh, press conference recently and uh, one of the gentlemen that took part in that, Nate Box, uh, one of the owners of the Black Box Hospitality Group, uh, which owns a number of restaurants, cafes, and a liquor store here in Edmonton, had some thoughts on that. I'll now turn it over to Nate Box to say a few words about what he's seen as the owner of Black Box Hospitality Group. Hi there, thanks for having me. Uh, the last two months has been trying to say the least, um, and I think that the last two weeks um, was again another another massive uh, speed bump for us. Uh, I own and operate uh, a group of restaurants and cafes and a liquor store in Edmonton. Uh, we're called Black Box Hospitality Group. And uh, in mid-March, we laid off 60 staff members, only keeping um, seven of them. So that was a quite, a, quite a shock on a personal and professional level. Uh, I feel like over the last two weeks, as things start to gain traction, we start to see funding in place from um, the feds, 
the reopening for us um, at a partial capacity was a really tough decision to make and something that I feel like we weren't consulted with nor privy to the information well enough in advance. Um, opening a restaurant after being closed for two months is not as simple as flipping a switch. And um, the communications that we had, even from other government agencies, was up to and including the day of our reopening, saying that they needed to be informed of whether or not they were, um, of whether or not we are going to open. Our landlords have been um, accommodating to the best of their ability, but largely feel in limbo uh, because they feel caught in this federal um, subsidy program and they don't have an incentive to give us the 25% discount on rent and eat the cost. That's a huge part, um, problem for us that we're, we're right up against. Uh, we lease about 14,000 square feet over four properties in Edmonton and I think that it's going to get more and more dire as these days grow on in this month. And so while we've felt the support of the community, we've felt the support of our landlords, we've seen the support of our city and the federal government. I really don't feel that we've felt the support of the province yet. A chance to chat with over the last few weeks, uh, we in the official opposition were calling for a few things, a ban on commercial rent evictions during the state of the pandemic, uh, going back to the drawing board on the federal commercial rent program to either rewrite the criteria or put in some investment from Alberta to help build our own program to help commercial renters because again, businesses are feeling they're not getting the support there that's really accessible to them. Uh, putting some grants, you know, maybe $5,000 to $10,000 for businesses who have to put in physical improvements and have new startup costs to comply with public health orders, giving some relief on utility bills, helping them with getting access to uh, personal protective equipment, and putting a freeze on business insurance premiums going back to March, maybe a 50% reduction going forward until the end of this year. Supports to help businesses be able to afford to get back up on their feet after months of losing revenue. Now, of course, one of the reasons that we saw cases so high in Calgary and Brooks that delayed those uh, jurisdictions being able to open up fully alongside the rest of the province in terms of stage one are the concerns that uh, with the outbreaks there because of some of the decisions that were made by this government. We've talked in previous episodes about the concerns around the Cargill and JBS meatpacking plants, how that put some of those workers into jeopardy and let the virus spread because the government chose not to take action and uh, and work with those businesses to, to see them shut down where they until they could operate safely. And indeed, so this delay in reopening Calgary Brooks shows how big of an impact uh, a failure like that can be. And of course, another one of the aspects where we've seen, unfortunately, government drag their feet and be a bit slow to respond, which has led to some larger outbreaks, is of course in continuing care and long-term care. And that's unfortunately led to some serious outbreaks that have spread from care home to care home, the most serious of those being uh, the McKenzie Town facility uh, from Rivera in Calgary. And where unfortunately now it's gotten to the point where we have some grieving families who are suing uh, Rivera. Now, what we've seen, unfortunately, is that Minister of Health, Tyler Shandro, has failed to protect Alberta seniors in many respects. As I said, the government was dragging their feet on a lot of these things. We had continuing care operators that have been asking for help dealing with COVID-19 for weeks, and the government did not step up or provide much in the way of additional support. We called for surge funding fairly early on, uh, two months ago, to support seniors in continuing care, additional government dollars, 
minister refused. We saw other jurisdictions like BC, Ontario, and Quebec who were getting a lot more actively involved to ensure the protection of their residents uh, in, in those facilities, to coordinate the staffing between them, to reduce exposure, and commit funding to support those workers who frankly are paid fairly low wages uh, and working at multiple facilities because that's the only way that they could make enough income to live. Uh, primarily women doing that work and in many cases newcomers to Canada. Unfortunately, what we saw in Alberta, UCP has been much slower to respond, have yet to implement a clear plan to coordinate staff so that they're only working at a single site, although that was announced on April 10th uh, by the Chief Medical Officer of Health, supposed to start on April 23rd, was put on hold on April 22nd, and we've yet to see the final plan. So, of course, Tyler Shandow claims that uh, about 95% of those workers are already only working at a single site, but that still means there's hundreds of staff that aren't uh, and potentially still working at, at more than one site and could be a risk for the spread of COVID-19. And then that was followed by the announcement of a wage top-up uh, that would be coming for those frontline workers' health care aides in long-term and continuing care on April 20th. Now, this past week, at long last, we saw the minister announce $170 million in funding. That's retroactive to March. So that works out to about $14 million a month, about a year's worth of funding. That's meant to enhance staff, provide more cleaning supplies, uh, address lost accommodation revenue at long-term care facilities, and for designated supportive living facilities in seniors' lodges. Now, this is after we have seen uh, serious, serious outbreaks in some facilities after we have seen lives lost. And, you know, as we're beginning to come out the other side of that initial wave. So one has to ask, why did the UCP take so long? And how much suffering could we have prevented if Tyler Shandro and his government had acted sooner? Well, at the same time, we found out this week that there's a $2 wage top-up that was promised and announced on April 20th. Well, as of April 7th, uh, pardon me, as of May 7th, operators were still waiting for details. So the actual facilities still didn't know the details of how that program was going to work. But the government reported that they had sent the funding out about that time. Two weeks later we find out that still nothing has actually been paid to any employees yet and could in fact take until mid-June to reach them. So once again, we have an evolving situation where these workers have been under pressure, these facilities have been under pressure, they've been dealing with these issues, they've been facing financial challenges from potentially from reduced hours or from the coordination of trying to coordinate workers at single sites when they've been working at multiple sites and it takes months to get a program in place to support them, support and help that they needed weeks ago. So it's unfortunate to see. But one of the other areas where we've had a lot of conversation in the in recent weeks, and I know I've heard a lot uh, from a lot of stakeholders in my constituency, has been concerns around the arts sector. Now, we recognize that the arts sector in the province of Alberta contributes about $5.3 billion to Alberta's economy. That's from the uh, Alberta Foundation for the Arts 2017-2018 annual report. It employs nearly 60,000 workers across the province of Alberta. So I, I took a moment to... Uh, bring in this week my colleague Nicole Gorin who is the MLA for Edmonton Castle Downs and she is the art critic for culture so I talked to Nicole to begin a little bit about what her experience has been like as critic Nicole, tell me a little bit. You came from a background in social work, but you stepped into a new role this last year as the culture critic for the official opposition. Um, what's that been like for you, getting to uh, know that side of the, I guess, the arts and culture industry? 
It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, everybody from the community has been so welcoming. They're so knowledgeable about their areas. And it's just been so wonderful to experience uh, some of the great things, like you mentioned, some of the concerts, the theater. I mean, these are all things that I've done over the years since childhood myself. Uh, my kids are involved in sports and dance. I myself have done hip hop dancing. Uh, so I've been involved in the country, <laughs> but yeah. it's just been great exposed to so much that I didn't really know was out there. That's fantastic. So, uh, so what are some of the things that might, that surprised you that maybe you didn't know about before that you've sort of learned in, uh, in sort of getting to know folks that work in the field? So one of the things I think uh, was really surprising was the interconnectedness of so many of the arts programs from the virtual events that are going on to talking about different programs that are being offered, the educational component to the arts, knowing that there's so many artists out there that give so freely of their time to make sure that arts can be experienced by so many. Uh, I didn't realize that. And so hearing about the projects that they have going on all across the province, whether it's engaging youth or whether it's engaging uh, low-income families, mm. those types of things. Um, I, I see a real compassion in the arts community and this real desire to, to give back to the community, which I think is absolutely incredible. Indeed. Now, you know, uh, a lot of people, when they talk to me about, uh, I'm the health critic, they talk to me and say, well, you know, that's such a huge file. There's so many different pieces to it. It's, uh, it's, that's a lot to keep track of. But, you know, when I really think about it, uh, arts and culture is probably, I think, every bit as complex and incredibly diverse as well. Has that been your experience? Oh, absolutely. Uh, things that I never really considered to be arts um, and culture in the file. So anything from community leagues, what every single community across the province has, there's painting, there's books, there's book publishers, there's live theater, there's music, there's the cast and crew talking about tattoo artists and culinary mm. arts. It's so vast. Uh, it's, it's something that I didn't really pay attention to before, but there's a piece I would say in every section of the province that has an arts and culture component to it. Absolutely. And, uh, and you hit on a really important part there, I think, is that there are so many people involved in making these things happen. There's all the people in line that got that book published. There's all the people that work on, on making a feature film. So a lot of people working, and uh, I guess that's the industry part of it. Absolutely. So there's a comparison that can be made to many in the arts community to different sectors. Uh, so there's crews that build the structures, the film sets. There's the truck drivers that bring the staging, the lighting, all of those things to a set. Uh, it's something that I think touches every kind of industry in the province when it comes to the creativity and the, the vast different jobs that are there. But really, this is a, a, an, uh, sorry, a sector that contributes immensely to our economy and it's things that people don't consider when they're thinking about the arts community and how diverse they are and what an economic driver this uh, industry mm. is for sure for our province. And so Nicole this week, uh, she uh, came out and she had uh, a press conference and she brought in some stakeholders from the arts and culture community, some folks from those industries to talk about their concerns, how they're being affected by COVID-19, some of the uh, government grants that have been cut and uh, what they would like to see from government. So here's that conversation with Nicole, along with Shannon McNally, who's the artistic director of the Lilac Street Festival in Calgary.
All right, folks, here with me today, I have uh, my, again, my colleague, Nicole Goring, who is our uh, critic for culture. And I have Shannon McNally, who is with the Lilac Festival in Calgary. And now, Shannon, I'm sorry, what is your official position with the Lilac Festival? I am the artistic director. Artistic director, fantastic. Now, you've been there for 14 years, I understand, and the festivals, this, this would be the 31st year, so you've been around for about half its life. I have, yes. I started out uh, just uh, on a part-time basis with coordinating all of our vendors, and then I grew into um, the programming aspect and booking all of our entertainment and our our kids area and our street performer elements as well. So it's grown into a, a full-time gig. So get, let's give it a bit of a sense of scale. So you were telling me it started out pretty small. So why don't you give us a sense of how small it started and how big it's gotten today? Uh, it began as a community event run by the uh, Cliff Bungalow Community Association. Um, and it was mostly volunteer-based and community member-based. And it was more of like an arts and, and crafts and a, a garage sales. And it's it just expanded from from that greatly okay and what is the what is the size of the festival today what's all entailed with it like how big is it first of all how many blocks you cover so we run along four street southwest from 12th avenue until elbow drive so that's 13 blocks and this year we had plans or still have plans for an expansion onto 17th avenue um, from second to fifth street so that was going to incorporate some of the businesses and um, patios and bars along 17th so there was probably going to be another 150 vendors or so that we were going to add there so an additional 150 so Mm -hmm. how many have you typically had in the past we have over 500 vendors wow there are eight live music stages um, with bands as well as dance performances um, so yeah, it's, it's extensive. There's lots of patio extensions. All of the four street businesses come out onto the road and do patio extensions as well. So it's a, uh, it's a busy day and it's attended by over a hundred thousand people. Wow. So that's, uh, that's a sizable impact. Uh, I, I have to admit, I've actually played at the Lilac Festival. Oh, so, you have? Uh, yeah. Back in, uh, I think, 2000, 2004, 5, 6, I was playing with the band uh, Screwtape Lewis. And so we had the chance to come down there a couple times and uh, play the stage uh, down at the end by the river by the Safeway there. That's what we consider our main stage. So good on you for that. <laughs> Fantastic. So Nicole, is this is this a typical kind of thing that you're hearing about festivals of this scale in Edmonton, Calgary, across the province? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, Edmonton has been known as the festival city. So these are great organizations that have come together all across the province doing uh, absolutely spectacular things for the community. They're well attended, they're enjoyed. Um, Shannon, I know when we talked, you talked about the economic impact of your one day festival. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Because I thought it was so incredible to hear the numbers. Um, Because when people talk about festivals, and they they see that there's no cost involved in attending the festival, Mm -hmm. they don't often think about the economic impact impact that that has on the community. Um, And I mean, you've had such a successful festival. It'd be great to hear some of those details. Yes. So we have, uh, with over 500 vendors attending, we have surveyed um, a good portion of them and discovered that their sales have an impact of 
over $3 million in a one day event. Um, and it's so, and the four street businesses use this event, um, as a promotional tour tool mm. for the area and for bringing people back to the neighborhood for continuous shopping and enjoyment. Um, so we feel like the, the citizens of Calgary that come down to Fourth Street and the Beltline and the greater area of downtown um, really benefit from seeing what, what sort of businesses are highlighted down there and obviously contribute greatly economically. Absolutely. And I can remember that uh, when we were down there playing the stage and taking a walk down, like you said, seeing all the vendors. So these are folks who are out there as part of their festival circuit. I know for a lot of them, that's how they're making income over the summer. And but indeed, yeah, a lot of the local bars, patios, restaurants, we could see they were they were packed out. They were seeing a lot of traffic from people coming. Yes. Yeah. So there's patio extensions that, that have their own live music aspects too. They, you know, all, they, they do their own, their own thing. They hire their own bands and, and party well after the festival is over too. Um, so it's, yeah, the business is really, the ones who love it really, really love it and look forward to it every year. So one of the big challenges I guess that you're facing and a lot of folks are is of course now with the with the restrictions that are in place around uh, COVID-19 to to uh, control the spread of it. Uh, we're limited outdoors for gat- to gatherings of no more than 50 people and people have to stay two meters apart. So that essentially means that there cannot be a lilac festival this year. Is that correct? So we have a a postponed date for Lilac Festival when everything started to come to a head in March. We contacted the city of Calgary and um, booked a tentative date for September. Um, The festival was supposed to take place on June 7th. Obviously, that is not happening. And with um, all public events canceled until August 31st, we're awaiting further instruction from the city as to what the fall time is going to look like for events. So we're cautiously optimistic, but um, we're definitely waiting to make our final decision on that for, so, for the 2020 year. So what are the challenges then? If, uh, if your festival is not able to go ahead, some folks would just look at it and go, well, you're not able to do the festival this year. So then, well, there's no cost then because you don't have to put anything in. So doesn't everything just break even? So would you just be fine if you can't hold the festival this year? Right. So because we're a nonprofit organization and we have been operating since the completion of last year's Lilac Festival, um, planning and implementing, um, taking vendor registration. So there's been lots of administrative work and operations that have gone on behind the scenes. Um, And now with everything that's occurring with um, our CIP granting program and the, the project based grant being suspended and reallocated, we aren't going to receive the funds from from that grant program. We're also um, delayed with our gaming and casinos that were slated for us in um, the fall. So they're all also going to be pushed back. Um, and then we also don't have a, a ticketed audience. So our fan base is is wide and great, but they're not as quantified as some other festivals who have ticket sales. Um, so, you know, there's, there is still the money has, has been spent to an extent. Um, uh, obviously there's a lot of, a lot of, um, costs that would have gone into the actual implementation that might not occur. Um, but there still is the, um, 
the viability of the organization and the need for us to preserve preserve that. So our, our funding from the government is is a really important factor for us um, because if we are having to defer vendor registration, which is a major um, revenue source for us until 2021, um, we're going to be stretched very thin within our organization. Yeah, I hear you. I have a major food festival that happens here in downtown Edmonton in my constituency, the Taste of Edmonton, and mm-hmm. that's a major challenge they're facing as well. They too are a vendor-based festival and again yeah those vendor those vendor fees are a big part of what allows them as you say to keep operating year-round and do a lot of the work that's required to be able you can't you know we don't just pick up one of these festivals and mount it off the ground it takes a lot of work behind the scenes and year-round to make it ready uh, Nicole are you hearing from a lot of other uh, arts organizations festivals that are in the same position we're hearing compounded impacts so it's definitely the fact that they can't hold the festival but it's impacted even more because the government cut the C, the SIP funding, as well as the loss to the access of casino funds, lottery funds, those types of things. Mm. These are organizations that um, run very smoothly when they have access to the supports that they need. And unfortunately, I'm hearing that this government isn't taking that seriously and isn't funding it properly. And so on top of COVID, there's all of these other barriers that the government is needlessly putting in place by taking away funding and support. So there's a lot of disruption then for arts organizations and festivals at the moment. Absolutely. Disruption, chaos, uncertainty, that's all being like impacted even more by the government. So some folks would say, well, I understand. Yeah, I, I like the arts and I enjoy going to a show or a festival, but that's not really important right now. We have a whole economy that we need to get back up and going. Uh, why is it important for, in the midst of all these other challenges that we have right now, for the governments to still ensure that the arts and culture industry are kept solid? You know, that's a great question, David, because I don't think the average person understands the impact of the arts community on the province. I mean, certainly right now, when we look at how people are coping with this pandemic, uh, they've turned to the arts community, whether they're taking a a painting class online, whether they're streaming uh, the Edmonton Symphony, um, taking a dance class like myself, there's significant importance in the arts community and they're one of our major sectors that can diversify our economy. Um, When we look at what the AFA report said in I believe it was 2017-2018, they talked about an impact of having 60,000 plus jobs in this sector in the province of Alberta as well as over five billion dollar economic impact uh, which is huge. So we have an industry that's here that's able to contribute during the relaunch. Um, and this government isn't taking it seriously. We've, we've asked for the government to appoint someone with an arts background to the economic recovery panel. Uh, we think that this is something that's essential, that someone have that arts and culture experience to be able to talk about the importance of this sector and uh, how they can really be an essential part of the relaunch. And I do. Uh, and while we haven't really heard anything from uh, from the minister, from the premier on this, uh, one of the premier's chief staff uh, did weigh in on Twitter to suggest that it was uh, it was a joke that uh, could we possibly be serious in making that proposal? Uh, what were your thoughts on that? I think it's absolutely disgusting to hear government discredit and attack an entire industry that we know has such a valuable impact on our economy, our mental health, and our overall well-being in the province. Um, And I think it's really disheartening to know that there has been no response, Uh, not to come out and clarify that perhaps this was um, incorrect on his behalf. And so to me and to 
the arts community, we're hearing that this is absolutely tone deaf and unacceptable of a government. I, I would like to add something. Yeah. So a community event like ours and other community events similar to us, public events that are free, um, that are not for profit, that don't have ticket sales, we, we often are not supported on a federal level um, for funding. And so it's really important for the provincial government to, to step up and, and, and top up some of that um, funding stream for us when we're not able to receive a Canada Council of the Arts or a Heritage Canada grant. Um, and there are examples um, in Ontario, for example, they have a Celebrate Ontario program that they're putting forth um, this year that was implemented last year. And they are funding all of these public events and community events for 2020, regardless of whether they happen or not. So I feel like there is support in other provinces for arts and culture, and it's not the same here, unfortunately. Yeah. And indeed, as a representative for downtown Edmonton, I can absolutely attest the incredible value that festivals and these celebrations and indeed the arts in general have for our community. It's a major loss for a lot of businesses in downtown Edmonton this summer to not have these festivals happening, whether that's hotels, whether it's the restaurants, bars, other people that get that traffic, uh, all the people that it brings into the community. And even then, just for that community vitality, for us to connect together, um, it's an incredible loss in in that respect. So what could government be doing? Nicole, I, I know that you uh, you had Shannon in uh, the other day and you put forward a few proposals for what you what we the government could be doing instead. Did you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, and I just want to touch a little bit on what Shannon said about uh, other jurisdictions supporting the arts. To my understanding, I think Alberta is the only province that is actually attacked and cut the arts. Uh, we're not seeing that across the country. And so that's quite disappointing that that's what's happening in our province. So listening to the arts community and what their ask is, is to simply uh, reinvest the $3 million to the Alberta Foundation of the Arts that was taken away. That would be a huge uh, starter for the organizations. Um, also reinstating the grants uh, that they they took away. So reopening the grants uh, and making sure that there's access to those funds um, and perhaps even looking at expanding in what those grants could do because we're, we're in a different environment right now. So how can we best support artists and the community um, in what they need to go forward? So whether it's setting up digital shows to help them um, focusing on research development promotion, like giving them opportunities in other areas because they can't do what they do best, which is these performances were engaging face to face. Uh, we need to look at alternative ways to support them. Um, and the other thing that I think is so huge, like I had mentioned earlier, is appointing an artist uh, to the economic recovery panel is something that we've heard loud and clear because that arts component is not being heard. That voice at the table isn't there. And Shannon, you were saying that you, as a, as a festival coordinator, you also work on the business side. You know numbers, you know budgets, you know economies and what it takes to run these. In fact, you work with a group of others to consult on outdoor festivals. Um, do you think artists would have something to contribute to the conversation about how we restart the economy in Alberta? Uh, I think that there's some of the most creative, um, adaptable and flexible people we have in our society. I think that if given a voice, they, they could present a lot of really interesting and innovative ways of dealing with this. You know, I've, I've been on calls and, and webinars with 
with Western Canadian artists and mm. their ability to adapt to the situation is like, it's unbelievable. They, they just turn a switch and, and they can, they can make it work, you know? So, uh, I, I love how fluid they are. I love all of the, the digital, um, virtual aspects that are going on, but they need to be supported in the meantime until we can get back together and start connecting in a, in a real way. And they can actually, you know, start performing again and seeing that revenue. And that goes for the small business artisans that we work with too. They're creating something really unique and bringing something so interesting to, to our community and they're suffering too. You know, the summer season and these public events are their bread and butter, their entire revenue stream for the year. And it's, it gives them the ability to, to continue through the winter and, and keep up with their creativity and their passion. So I don't like to think I'm a bleeding heart for the arts. I really do feel like it's the fabric of our society. It creates a true quality of life in our city beyond just going to work and paying your bills. You have to have, have, to have a place to have fun. And not everyone can go to a ticketed festival. They like the, the free elements that the city offers too and the di- diversity that we have. Absolutely. And I think you're 100% right. Artists are incredibly creative entrepreneurs. They are business people and they can come up with some incredible. Nobody knows how to do more with less, I think, than folks in the arts community. But there is a point at which you you cut to the bone and there simply is nothing left for them to work with. And mm-hmm. there's a real concern that that could be the case now. So uh, I appreciate that you brought this forward and that you sort of put some substantive opportunities on the table for how government could act on this. But how about us as individuals? So average Albertans who sort of uh, are losing these festivals or, you know, uh, know that the artists are struggling, what can they be doing to help support the community right now? So everyone needs to get a little bit better at researching and Googling online. Um, You know, if you've heard an artist or a a friend has has told you about a new a musician a local musician like check out their website see what sort of virtual concerts they have going support them uh, offer tips and donations where you can um, as far as the the small businesses go you know you can you can dig deep and if there's a product that you really need or, or want it doesn't have to come from Walmart you know you can find the alternative made right here in Calgary it just requires a little bit more time which we kind of all have right now so that's that's what I think excellent Nicole any thoughts I think that something that was wonderful that came out of our conference press conference was talking about the importance of citizens getting active and involved and so if you're concerned about how the government has been attacking the arts community, write a letter to your MLA, Uh, reach out to the Minister of Culture, reach out to the Premier and talk about your concern. Um, That's the best way to advocate. Get on social media and share messages, share wonderful things that the arts community is doing, support them in ways that you can get involved and uh, just highlighting that you're upset about all of these drastic cuts and, and frankly, the abuse towards this community. Absolutely. And I know one great resource that I found recently has been uh, CKUA. So our uh, formerly public uh, but nonprofit radio station here in the province of Alberta that does incredible work promoting the arts. If you go to CKUA.org, they have a great calendar of different streaming events that are happening across the province of Alberta. Well, thank you so much to, uh, to both of you for joining me here today and all you're doing to support the arts sector. Wish you all the best. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. 
So it's definitely going to be a very different summer for us here in the province of Alberta with uh, restrictions on camping, the loss of so many festivals and the usual performances and stuff we see in the community. We're going to have to adapt in a lot of different ways. Uh, one way that we did not expect to see us adapting is what we found out this week in uh, regards to environmental monitoring in the province of Alberta. What we found out this week was that the announcement from the Alberta Energy Regulator that oil and gas companies in the province of Alberta no longer have to monitor any fumes released by burning or conducting or conduct any programs to detect and repair leaks of methane, a potent greenhouse gas. And surface waters no longer need to be tested unless they escape to the environment, and those waters don't have to be lab tested. Soil and groundwater monitoring is gone, with the exception of any monitoring necessary to protect human health and ecological receptors. Uh, in situ oil sands operations no longer have to conduct any wildlife monitoring, so they don't have to watch out for ducks on tailing ponds, including research programs and population estimates and remotely operated monitoring. Reclamation and wetland monitoring is also suspended as our research requires. Now, the claim that's being made is that this is due to safety concerns due to COVID-19. The fact is we have people actually going in now to work. They have people going to restaurants and uh, servers coming up in masks and serving people food. I can go and get a haircut. I can get my beard trimmed and have a hairstylist inches from my face. But for some reason, somebody can't go on their own individually out to check on this important monitoring in the environment. Uh, one of the University of Calgary professor, Sean Fluker, notes that, well, this is pretty similar to a longtime wish list that's been out for a while from the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. So there's some real questions here. So for the clip of the week, here's Rachel Notley, our leader of the official opposition, with some fairly candid thoughts on this decision. My question is, what would convince you that it really is too unsafe for them to be doing this kind of surveillance activity right now? Well, it's, this is an utterly idiotic decision and an, an idiotic rationale. Uh, what, in fact, we're seeing here is a cynical and exploitive use of this pandemic in order to uh, bring about the extreme uh, agenda of Jason Kenney, which is to stop any work to protect the air land and water uh, that all Albertans care about. We have a government that is telling hairdressers that it is okay to go get close enough to people to cut their hair, but somehow uh, oil and gas companies and environmental safety officers cannot uh, go to a lake and check the water to see if there are carcinogens in it. This is one of the most short-sighted, backwards, anti-economic, uh, anti-environment decisions I have seen uh, out of any government for a very, very long time. So there you have it. Some words from Rachel Notley there on the environmental concerns that we're starting to hear from many and concerns about uh, protecting the land on which we live. So we'll see. We may come back to that in a future episode of The Herd. But for this week, I want to send you out with a band who is also very invested in this land where we find ourselves. Of course, we recognize we're here in the territory of Treaty 6, uh, land of many indigenous peoples, uh, amongst them the Cree. Uh, this band uh, called Nahiawak, they take their name 
name from their Cree heritage. They hail from right here in Amiskwichi, the Cree word for Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. Uh, composed of Chris Harper on vocals and guitar, Matthew Cardinal on synthesizers, guitar and bass, and Merrick Tyler on drums and percussion. And they're a band that's deeply invested in intersecting traditional and contemporary music and indeed weaving their indigenous culture and beliefs in with their music. So they, on October 24th of last year, they released their first uh, full debut album, The P, on uh, Canadian label Arts and Crafts, uh, home to groups like Broken Social Scene. Uh, it was produced by Colin Stewart from the new pornographers, Black Mountain Destroyer, a sort of post-rock soundscapes with some surreal pop and ambient sounds. And it's a combination of the teachings of Nahia Wax elders with the band's own interest in music instrumentation and lyrics, as Chris Harper, uh, leader the band says our goal is not to build up a group of individuals but rather keep kicking at the door built in front of many since they released that album they've been getting a lot of attention in january find out that they were nominated for a juno award for indigenous artist or group of the year uh the winners have not been announced the junos are supposed to go forward in march and that's been delayed because of covid19 so we'll wait to see if they do in fact win that juno but on february 5th we did see them win the uh, 2019 edmonton music prize an awards sponsored by the City of Edmonton through the Edmonton Arts Council, administered by Alberta Music. And so congratulations to Nahia Walk, who won $10,000 in prize money with that. So send you out today with a track from that album. Encourage you to check it out. The album Napi from Nahia Walk and their song Tommaso. Enjoy. As always, you can find me at DShepYEG, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'll see you next week.